Welcome to the show. This is the podcast for great communicators and people who are interested in communication. I'm Mike Sargent. I'm a media trainer, consultant, uh, writer. And on this podcast, the PR for Humans podcast, I'm trying to talk to the most interesting people I can find in business and communication. So we've had actors on, we've had uh, presenters, uh, comedians, PR people, of course, writers, novelists, uh, and CEOs. I want to talk to entrepreneurs as well, people who've actually founded businesses, built businesses, and um, walked the walk as well as talking the talk, which many of us do. So delighted today that we've got Lucinda Bruce Gardine, the founder of Genius Foods here with us today. Hello, Lucinda. Hello. Nice and, to be here. Um, Genius Foods, a lot of us will, will actually now recognise the name because you've been going for quite a few years. But rather than me get it wrong, you just tell us what you do and, uh, and what it's all about. Okay, well, I'm the founder of Genius Foods. Uh, we make great tasting gluten-free bakery products. They, they also tend to be dairy-free. And we make them in, in Scotland, in our bakery, and we send them around the world to all of our consumers who are desperately wanting to le- lead a, a normal, convenient lifestyle. And just tell us about the, the development of this business, because I think you've been going for, well, almost 10 years now. Yes. Um, so yeah. just, yeah, wh- where are you today? Before we scroll back and we'll, we'll get the, the story of how you founded the business and, 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 and built it and so on. But where are you today? What's the snapshot in 2018 of Genius Food? We export uh, our 26 different products to um, to 10, 10 countries around the world at the moment. Um, so we have millions of consumers globally. We send our bread fresh to Holland each day. We send frozen bread all the way down to Australia for our consumers down there. We're turning over just north of 30 million. And we have 300 employees based in Scotland and in France, Holland, Germany and America and Australia. And that's, that is, it's a fantastic story. And you have featured in, in uh, all sorts of kind of lists of uh, entrepreneurs on the rise. People are watching now. The business is growing and you're sort of mentoring others through that journey, I suppose. Well, absolutely. I've, I've always spent really sort of seven days a week uh, thinking and working in the business. It's been the most compelling journey until last October when, when I decided to step back a little bit, get in people that uh, would do a better job than, I, than I, I can now do at this stage. We're a, a big, big corporate beast now. So I've brought in a wonderful woman from Unilever and a master baker from Warburton's. And they now run the the product, uh, the product team, and um, which has given me a little bit of time to sort of now step away and start to help other people build their businesses, uh, which I'm really really enjoying. And that's what you're doing through your work at the the University of Edinburgh. Yes, so I've I've become a Royal Society Entrepreneur in Residence at the School of Physics at Edinburgh University, and I'm helping um, the, the physicists there who have some fantastic ideas take their ideas out of the lab and commercialise them. Um, and just bring in a more sort of entrepreneurial spirit really into the school. And it's fantastic, loving it. And it's interesting you, you, you mentioned physics because people might often think that food is all about organic things and biology. But why, why is physics so important? Well, our bread is all about physics um, and chemistry because uh, wheat flour is the most incredible, unique substance. The gluten in it behaves a little bit like bubble gum. It's a protein that's, that has a sort of elastic, stretchy texture. And when you add water to wheat flour, you get an elastic, stretchy dough, which behaves a bit like bubble gum. 
and it fills with bubbles created by the yeast uh, to, to give you your risen loaf, which then sets in the oven to create the, the crusty, fluffy, open bubbly texture of bread. Now, if you add water to a gluten-free flour, such as rice flour or tapioca flour, you, you, you have soup. You make soup. There is no structure whatsoever. Not very enjoyable. And so you have to use a whole blend of about 20 different ingredients to imitate uh, the unique characters of, of, of gluten and wheat flour. Um, and, and it's all about controlling the stretch and the elasticity of that dough to allow it to support itself as it rises and then to set in the oven as it bakes. And, and it's extremely challenging, highly scientific, and it's a, it's a new art and science form in its own right. Yeah, um, it's fascinating because we, we, we think of food maybe as being all about taste and flavour and nutrients but actually so much of it is about structure and, and, and texture, isn't it? It is. It's the way it feels in your mouth. It's the way you use the product. It's the way it slices. It's the way, you know, it's the, the way you can butter it. Um, all of these things are so important to give you that full eating experience. And, of course, the taste is absolutely essential to get right. It's very easy to get tied up in the science. But I suppose that's where I come in. I have a, a chefing background and, and the foodie side of the product is absolutely essential to get right. And that's why Genius Bread has done so well. We do the science well and we do the, we do the taste well. Yeah, and the, this past decade, I, I think, as, as well as, as coincided with a period of much greater awareness about, about gluten and the role it plays in our, in our diets and the problems it, it can cause as well, I suppose. A- absolutely. The awareness of um, the link between great health and the food that you eat has, I think, really strengthened over the last decade. Um, so people with eczema now are now referred for allergy testing, whereas before they might have just been given a steroid cream. Um, and so there's a much greater awareness of, of a, a possible intolerance if you do have some symptoms that you can't quite understand. Yes, and even I mean, I had a, a, um, a bad cold and a chest infection at the beginning of the year, and I went to the doctor. We had all the antibiotics and everything else, which didn't work. And, and then she came out with a good line, which was, you know, look at your diet because, you know, food is, is medicine, really. Yes. And uh, I thought that was interesting coming from a GP in the NHS. To sort of take that line, I don't think I don't think a GP would have said that ten years ago. That's a very open-minded GP. I've I've always found that if a GP has had some experience of allergies or intolerances in their family or a friend has been touched by by, by the situation, then they are absolutely fantastic. Um, I think GP the awareness has definitely grown again amongst GPs, but I don't think they cover nutrition um, to the same degree as other parts of their training. So they're learning with us, I think. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's worth just saying that really in the last um, last 20 to 30 years, people only eat on average about 20 ingredients. If you start to think about what you eat day in, day out, we are eating very, very few ingredients. And so therefore, if you're eating those ingredients all the time, that's not great for your body. So your doctor saying to you, well, what about trying this and trying that and adding a bit more variety to your diet is probably going to to make an improvement. Yeah, um, absolutely. And let's just so let's go back to the to the to the beginning really about the the idea. We we love we love startup stories. We love to hear about how successful businesses came into being. What was the what was the moment? The where did the idea come from? Um, what was the spark that kind of lit the fire? Uh, so tell us tell us about your story. How how did it all how did it all start? Where did where did the idea come from and the motivation? Okay, well, I'm a physiologist. I studied physiology at university. 
Um, I was going to be a doctor, but actually went off the idea while I was at university and thought I'd just go to Leith School of Food and Wine, get the cooking bug out of my system. I'd always been mad on food. I come from a very foodie family and they'd always said, don't go into the food industry. You don't get paid well. Hours are very long. Go and do something sensible. Go and be a doctor. But I just thought, no, I, food is in my blood. Yeah. Um, so I had a very happy time at Leith's. Um, spent many hours sitting in the pub next door with piles of cookie books with all of these other people that love food as much as I did. I then went to Bebendum, honed my skills there. Uh, it's a Michelin star restaurant on the Fulham Road in London. And what were you actually doing there? I was a chef to party. Right. So I was the one shucking all the oysters and making crab salads to, to order. Um, so I had. And that must have been fantastically hard. Work, it, it was. Right? I had about three fingers left, actually, right. at the end of it. <laughs> it, was, it was really tough, really yeah. hard. I realised I could work really hard. I could survive on very little sleep. And it, it really toughened me up and showed me what I could put up with as a person because it, it, it's not for the faint-hearted being a, a chef in, in that sort of pressured environment. Um, so that was fantastic. Um, then after that, I ran a catering company, spent six months working in, in Tuscany and really became very passionate about bread, um, very interested in the way that on a stormy day, bread wouldn't rise. On a fine day, the bread would rise beautifully. You know, I loved the science behind the bread. I loved creating different structures, the open bubbly texture of a ciabatta versus a much sort of closer but fluffy texture of focaccia. And you were seeing this going on in Italy? Yeah, well, I was, I, was cooking cooking. For, I was cooking for um, American and English uh, art and architecture tourists in a, in a beautiful farmhouse above Pisa. And, uh, and Sounds was, idyllic, but it probably was again. Tough, it was tough, it hard, was hard, hard but do you <laughs> yeah. know what? I loved it. I really honed my Tuscan cooking skills. Uh, I was very interested in Tuscan food, and and bread. I you know, so that was fantastic. I came back. I then wrote the Leith's Techniques Bible for Leith School of Food and Wine, which is the course in the book, and it's all about the functionality of ingredients. It's all about why we use wheat flour in a cake versus bread versus a a white sauce, what the wheat flour is doing in all of those different sorts of food. So it was the functionality, really, of all the mainstream ingredients that we use. And during which time I had my first two children. My eldest is dairy, uh, severely allergic to dairy products. Um, So we got to grips with him and live on an Asian and and sort of uh, Mediterranean diet, which was perfect. No problem there. Um, But then my second son came along who uh, was diagnosed as gluten intolerant when he was three. Um, He was wasting away in front of our eyes. Um, He had no energy. He was always cold. He was always sort of whiny and whingy if he ate cake or biscuits or anything a normal child, you know, normally a child would love. Um, He would lie on the chair with a very, very sore tummy and then rush to the loo. And we were really very worried about him. I mean, he was tiny. And the doctor said, you know, it looks as though it could be gluten. Take him off gluten, which we did. And within a week, he didn't feel sick anymore. He'd, he'd been feeling sick, I think, since he'd been weaned, which just made me feel terrible as a mother. Um, and within a month, he'd put two kilos on. He was running around like a little healthy healthy boy again. He was a changed child, basically. And it was the most unbelievable relief um, that, that we'd realised what the problem was. And it's amazing and to did think. Did you have much knowledge of gluten at that time? Um, well, no. Although I was a trained chef, you know, we hadn't really covered cooking for dietary restrictions. That wasn't that wasn't part of the of the training. It was all about optimizing the functionality of wheat flour, de- you know, cream, eggs. You know, it was all about those ingredients. And so, suddenly, cooking without them 
was a shock and I realised I was going to have to retrain myself. And the one thing I couldn't find anywhere was a decent loaf of fresh, soft bread to be able to make my, my son a sandwich. And not being able to make a sandwich is is a real handicap. Um, you can't send him on a school trip very easily without sending a potato salad or rice cakes. And how many children want to eat rice cakes? Not um, You know, how uh, we couldn't go on an impulsive picnic. Uh, children's parties were a nightmare. Um, you know, when you stop to think about how a sandwich gives us that complete sort of convenience in our lives, we, we, we didn't have that anymore. And the bread at the time was um, sort of hard, dry and crumbly bread in, in shrouded in plastic with a shelf life of, you know, nine months um, full of ingredients I'd never heard of. And it made me really cross. It was £7 a loaf for, for the, the privilege of buying something that, that you had to microwave or toast to make edible. And um, I decided it wasn't good enough and I needed to change the status quo. I needed to come up with a way of creating a soft, fresh loaf of bread so that my family and other families like us could lead a normal life. So it was, it was, it's a fascinating story and it's, it's this combination of, of, a, of a love of bread but also the personal need to find a new form of bread that works for for people like yours. Yes, yes. And uh, it's it's fascinating because when you add water to wheat flour, you you create this stretchy elastic dough. When you add water to gluten-free ingredients, you get a drink of... You get a soup. Yeah. And I think, clearly, people who'd been asked to create a gluten loaf a gluten-free loaf for the supermarkets, had literally made soup, popped it in a tin and baked it, and so you got these little bricks. And and the challenge was to create that stretch and elasticity to allow the loaf to rise and set like a normal loaf would to allow you to have that soft, springy bread at the end of the process. And it was a two-year process to get to that stage. I I I worked like a woman possessed in my kitchen Every, all the time. I had three children by this stage. While they slept, I obsessively blended ingredients from my local health food store and uh, made thousands of loaves of bread over a two-year period. I broke two ovens, broke my Maggi mix. <laughs> I would make about 14 loaves a day and the kids would come back from school and I'd get them to taste the best one. They were my chief tasters. And finally, after two years, uh, my son said, wow, that was really delicious, mummy. That was, can I have some more? <laughs> years, and so yeah. I thought, wow, I must be there. Yes. And, you know, I wanted to hear wow from them because it had to have wow factor. The bread had to generate a wow for me to know that it was a groundbreaking product. Um, and, and what that, was your motivation at that time? Did, did you think, I spot a massive gap in the market and, I, and, I'm, and I'm motivated to build a business? Or did you think... I want to make something great that my son would like and other other kids would also enjoy and families would also enjoy. Um, my primary motivation was my family. My secondary motivation was that I knew I'd I'd spotted a, a gap in the market. I'm I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I come from a, a very entrepreneurial family. I'd never really wanted to work for anyone, and I could see that this was a way of making a huge difference to to people. And you know, I'm running my own business as well as helping my family. Um, and so I needed to scale it. You know, I had a Magic Mix recipe. I needed to scale it so that I could get it into the supermarkets because actually, selfishly, I didn't want to have to make bread 
in my kitchen, you know, every few days. It takes, it takes four hours <laughs> to make. I wanted to buy yeah. a pack of bread like every other mum when I went shopping. Yeah. But it, it's a great story. And, and it's that combination of, of, the, of the need, the opportunity, the entrepreneurial spirit, and, and the passion for what you're doing, which combined that, that love of bread and love of food with, with, with your own family's needs. That, that's why it, what makes it, for me, a very... Very yes. interesting and powerful story. Yes, and and it and it, it was an incredible moment when I could just make a sandwich for my son. Um, you know, his his pat lunch looked like everybody else's at school, um, which was a good thing. You know, because there's a lot of isolation that goes with dietary restrictions. Yeah, uh, and and children just want to be like their friends. And so at this at this point, you 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 had a product that that you tested on 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 um, on the kids. They they said it had the wow factor. Great. And then, then what did you do? How did you how did you get this thing? I mean, you clearly had some business experience by that point. Well, so I'd, run, I'd run a catering company in London. Yeah. So you weren't you weren't yes. kind of a completely sort of green entrepreneur. I was pretty green, and I think sometimes to change the status quo, you have to be quite green, because if you know what could happen and the challenges you might come up against, I think probably a lot of people would be put off by that. Um, I was just on a mission. I, I, I still have this very clear vision of what I'm trying to do. And um, I thought, right, well, I've got to find a bakery. I've got to find a gluten-free bakery. So I walked into my local Sainsbury's uh, where I go shopping, and I said, you've got my two books on the shelf. I've you know, written the book on how to cook for food allergies. You've got the least Techniques Bible, so I'm not completely mad. I've come up with this loaf of bread, and I need somewhere to make it. And lo and behold the largest gluten-free bakery in, in the country, so in the UK. This is, you know, I was living in Edinburgh now, mm. and most things are down in London. Um, it was literally 40 minutes down the road between Glasgow and Edinburgh, which was fantastic because at the time I had a one-, three-, and five-year-old um, at home, and it would have been really hard to be travelling up and down to London. So, so I, 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 through the night, I would do night shifts at the bakery uh, trialing the bread, converting it from my Maggi mix recipe to a 200 kilo batch, and because of the sensitivity of the formulations, because there's no gluten, there's n- none of that lovely yeah. stretchy stuff in the recipe. It was very, very sensitive to any variable. So it took us about a year to create a product that we were really, really proud of. And at this point, did you, did you have capital? Did you need investment? Did you did you have a, a business no. structure, or were you no, just, it you was know, just me. pushing this through on you know basically on your own? I was just determined that I wasn't going to show anyone a bread a loaf of bread that had just come out of my oven at home because I thought that was meaningless. Mm. You know, anyone could, anyone can do that. Anyone that was as mad as me and as compelled as me <laughs> to create this this loaf of bread, they could have done that from their kitchen. But actually to then scale it and be able to go to a supermarket and say, look, I've scaled my recipe. This is what I can make in yeah. an industrial setting. That's credibility. It, it gives you the yeah. credibility. Yeah. So, and you were doing um, that at night? So I was were, doing it through the night. And then, so and you, then you were I'd, looking after your kids and doing other stuff during the day and, and, working, yes, and then so, going to the, the factory at night? And yes, so I'd loads. quite often uh, make the bread at night, um, go, to, go on the way back, do the school run, you know, covered in covered in flour, um, <laughs> and uh, and one day, you know, a, a father at the school um, said, "Lucinda, why are you always covered in flour?" <laughs> and I, well, you know, I'm I've just come from the bakery. I've just yeah. been, you know, I'm, doing what I do. I'm just yeah. scaling up my bread. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was it was tough. I I I I struggled with some really bad chest infections, 
um, but I was I was driven I was I was driven by this need to sort the problem out for my family and for other people. Yeah, and then at what point did you was there a sort of breakthrough moment when when somebody said yes, yeah, step this way, we're going to stock it, or or was it just very sort of incremental trying to get it actually out there into into the shops? Well, again, there was quite a lot of fate involved. Um, the father that asked me why I was always covered in flour, um, and I told him I was coming up with a gluten-free bread at the time, He's a, he was a, a celiac, um, Sir Bill Gamble, um, care, um, founder and CEO of Ken Energy Oil, which is a very successful business in Scotland. And um, he hadn't been able to eat bread for years and years and years because there was nothing, really, that was edible. And um, he tried the bread when, when I'd finally scaled. He had to wait for 18 months to try the bread. And he got, got in touch and said, Lucinda, I think this is going to change my life. And I think it's going to change the lives of, of many other people like me. And I'd like to back you. I'd like to back you to help you know, recruit a team to take this to market properly. And that was a really big thing because I'd been working on this for three years on my own. It was my It was my fourth baby. Um, and it was quite a moment to think, wow, I'm going to share this journey with someone else. But I realised that I wouldn't be able to do it all on my own. I was a talented person in my own right. I was able to develop products from nothing. Um, but to negotiate the supermarkets, to build a brand, to do all of the other things that you need to do to build a proper business, I felt I needed I needed help. And also, I needed to be able to concentrate on the products that I was pioneering um, so together we we built a vision uh, which was to um, take take my bread across the globe to change the lives of people around the world who couldn't eat gluten um, and without any market data there was no market data to rely on because it was a new product we we attracted an expert team um, to help take that vision to reality, um, to build that brand and get us into our first major retailer. And so this partnership, was it something you, you were sort of seeking and hoping for? Or when he, when he came to you and said, Look, I'm going to back you, was it, was it a complete surprise? It was he, a surprise because I thought I was going to just build my business. You weren't shoving loaves at him every day no, at the school. No, not at all. I hope this guy Not at all. No, no, no. It, I was going to build the business myself um, slowly by um, finding, you know, making the bread at the bakery and then transporting it around Edinburgh, building a marketing story that I would then take to Sainsbury's. That was that was my plan. And he said, Lucinda, we need to do it faster than that. We need to get this out as quickly as we can because otherwise someone else will go, go away with your idea. And, yeah, and the first and, mover advantage. Yes, it was the first mover advantage. Yeah, yeah. And I agreed with him. And, and actually, it was the best decision I, I could have possibly taken. Yeah. And how did you feel at that moment? really daunted um and and nervous but um uh, bill has been as passionate i would say if you're if if you're bringing an investor in right at right at the get go it needs to be an investor who is as passionate as you are about the opportunity um he knew it was going to change his life so he was emotionally invested in it it wasn't just a financial investment and he's now our chairman um and he has been on the journey with me the whole way through yeah and and I'm fascinated by by the coming together of of your story and the story of a, of this emerging business and you know the, the root of all of these great kind of entrepreneur stories or business leader stories there is there is this kind of passion and drive isn't there that there's something that motivates the individual that is that is kind of it's so much more than a than a business plan or a set of projections on a on a graph or a spreadsheet it's it's something about the nature of 
of human beings and what we need and what drives us and what motivates us. And it's sort of it's deeply emotional as well as all the practicalities of, yes. of running a business. Yes. And I think for me, I, I don't think I could have got pa- as passionate about a chocolate cake. I was I was pa- I'm passionate, endlessly passionate about what I do because we provide staple products for people that ease the lives of of our consumers. Yeah. Um, without everyday food. Every day, and and that keeps me going. That I know our consumers need our products to live normally. And I think because you've got this very clear story that connects you to the business, your life story, the growth of this business, that that must make it easier to get out and, and communicate uh, about um, Genius Foods and, and to tell tell people you know what it is and how it's grown and all the other kind of you know we often think about business communication as sort of messaging or series of this that and the other but it's it's so real in this case because it's it's uh, it seems like a genuine authentic story that you're, you're able to tell well it is and I think the the other thing is that that consumers are highly emotional about their bread and you know they are highly emotional about all of the other products they want too. you know the moment they knew that they could eat bread again you know, it was they were clamouring for well, what about crumpets? What about pancakes? What about brioche? What about pan au chocolat? What about croissant? And if we asked our if we ask our consumers what they're looking for next, literally we are deluged. You know, we have a really, um, a really emotive, um, emotional, uh, engaged group of consumers that absolutely tell us what they're wanting when they're happy, when they're not happy. Um, so it makes it very, very easy to be very engaged with the consumer. They know that we understand them. And and it sounds like you're very, very connected to the to the people who who buy and consume your products. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this, well, I'm a consumer. You're a consumer. Our chairman's also, a consumer. This, this kind of it's, it's, the way you describe it, like a, a conversation with your with your customers, really valuing your customers and what they think and what they want, and it's sort of driven by by their their needs and desires, which is. You know, it's 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 completely different to the old-fashioned view of business. A business creates something and tries to market it or push it at people or sell it at people. For you, I, I guess it's about engaging and keeping that engagement. And, and how do, how do you do that? I mean, do you, are you a big believer in social media or um, you know how do you actually communicate and listen to your to your customers and respond to what they want? Well, even when we were little, um, so even when we were a group of twenty. Uh, people in an office in Edinburgh, we had six people on the phones for customer care because we felt it was really important that people could ring, you know, particularly in those early days when people hadn't eaten bread for, you know, decades. And the the stories we heard, um, you know, mother ringing in tears to say her little boy was no longer being bullied at school because his pat lunch looked like like his friends. Wow. Uh, You know, a mother saying that she was just on her way home from the supermarket and she'd eaten three loaves of bread for the first time (laughs) in 50 years. You know, was was that okay? (laughs) And it was, I don't know. But, you know, sort of, so it was really important um, right from the word go that we had people to talk to. Uh, We didn't want to be one of those touch button Mm. type companies so that was really important important um social media absolutely really important um we have we have a lot of engagement with bloggers and consumers through our social media um that that's really important we do a lot of food shows so a lot of consumer shows where we'll go and we'll have a big stand and 
and, and people will come year in, year out, year out to talk to us. I've actually got to know some of our consumers extremely well because we have a jolly good chat every year mm. at uh, the Good Food Show or whatever in London. Um, so that's really great. Um, but actually, it's in a crisis where you really need to show your, your consumers that you're thinking of them, that they're at the heart of your business. So we had a, a recall um, in 2015, which was just devastating. Mm. Um, we, what happened? A, a contaminated ingredient came into our bakery and, and we used it in seven products. We immediately realised um, that product had gone out because we test everything all the time. So we, we called, you know, we, we called the product back. We sent notes out to, to everyone that needed to know that we'd had a recall um, and we'd had a contaminated product. And then I sat in customer care for two weeks after that, taking all of the really, really, you know, challenging calls with very, very upset, anxious consumers. And they were understandably. And, um, and that was really tough. But actually, 99% of those people that rang in a really, really anxious state and very, very angry, by the end of the call, they could see that we cared immeasurably about the situation that we were doing everything we can to make sure that it would never happen again that we were there to listen we were there to talk to them to be really open about the situation and in fact we got huge plaudits both from the consumer population uh, the consumers and and from industry actually the how we uh, the way we d- we dealt with it Sounds it was like not good, it yeah. was not legalese not lots of legal sort of no, and this is, this is an echo of a Letters, conversation we had, we had last um, week on, on the podcast um, about responding to crisis, about yeah. the importance of leading with empathy, you know, and understanding that people are upset and why they're upset, and taking responsibility for Absolutely. it, showing action, showing that mm-hmm. you're going to put it right, it's not going to happen again. And, and if you do those things, it, people don't, you know, they may or may not blame you for what happened initially, but they can't criticise your response. And the response is so important. It really is. go wrong. So, you know, th- we actually ironically um, managed to get an awful lot of trust from our consumers from that situation. Yeah, it and really... actually you can improve your reputation in exactly. crisis if you handle it, yes. if you handle it right. It's, it's an interesting lesson. So so we're, just, we're, 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 we're moving toward, towards the end. It's been great, great hearing, hearing your story, but I just wonder, um, having, having built up this business to, to where it is today, whether you had any, any lessons for any would-be entrepreneurs out there, people who maybe got, got the, you know, the germ of an idea... Um, for starting their own business, um, is it is it as simple as just just go for it, or you know, are there, are there, are there also some warnings that you could that you could uh, include in in any advice that you'd give out? I think once while you're coming up with the idea, while you're trying to convert your idea into into an actual physical thing, um, resilience and grit is super important um, because you will come up against challenges. And if you can work through those challenges, you're basically filtering all of the people that don't have grit, who are probably trying to do the same thing as you. Um, so you, know, you become fewer and fewer and fewer. It's sort of, you almost sort of you're you're in a funnel, um, yeah. and and that's a really good way to think about it. That every challenge you get through, you will be stronger and have more edge than someone else who couldn't. Um, couldn't get through that challenge and you learn and you become stronger so welcome challenge and when you get to a stage where you feel that you can't do everything on your own be really aware of your strengths and weaknesses start to think about who you need in your team leave your ego at the door and and make sure you're getting 
the right team around you to to take your take your product to market in in a professional fast paced way because that's the way you'll maintain your edge um be brave and export so you know really look overseas um because the opportunities are endless and um you know it, it, it enjoy enjoy the ride try and enjoy it um try not to get too excited when things are going really well or too low when things are not going well it's really important to remain constant because otherwise you'll burn yourself out mm. and just keep keep showing up keep keep yeah. going yeah the resilience is 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 so important and and what's what's next for you so you you've taken a, a kind of a bit of a step back from the absolute kind of seven days a week immersion in this business and as, as you say you're balancing it out with, with work at university and, and so on I mean are you are you a, a serial entrepreneur could you do it all over again with something else or was was this your kind of one clear mission that, that you had I think I I will be a serial entrepreneur at the moment my commitments are to to genius to the university and to my family mm. Um, I, I feel I can't take any more on at the moment. Um, as as the genie, genius journey progresses, I, I imagine I'll be stepping back and back and back. Um, and and I am sure that um, I will start another business one day. It's in it's it's in my genes. I love it. I love the the cut and thrust of it. I love the stimulation. I love the opportunities that running a business throws at you, uh, both good and bad. And uh, absolutely, I'll definitely start something else at some point. Well, good luck with, with whatever comes next and, and good luck uh, with the future for, for Genius as well. Thank you very um, much. Lucinda, it's been, it's been lovely and fascinating um, and reassuring hearing, hearing this story. So um, you've been a great guest on, on the podcast. Uh, thanks to everyone out there for, for listening. Thank you.